As the colors change to fall, the shows just keep getting brighter on Global Voice Broadcasting. Shows about everything that matters to you. From love, living, and life. If you're talking about it, we're talking about it this fall. On Global Voice Broadcasting. Don't miss a second. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. Despite our long-standing preoccupation with sexuality, most people know surprisingly little about the sex lives of others. One result of this information gap is that many people assume that others are having better sex and more of it than they actually are. Rachel Hill's The Sex Myth. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, where good girls go for sexual empowerment. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and I'm so thrilled to have this author on the line with me here today. Rachel Hills is a New York-based, Australia-born journalist who's written about feminism and social trends for a whole variety of publications, including Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Time, and many more. Her book, The Sex Myth, The Gap Between Our Fantasies and Reality, released in August of this year. In the book, she argues that 50 years after the sexual revolution were controlled by a new type of sexual convention that while having sex once made us dirty, uh, we're now considered defective if we don't have enough. Thank you so much for joining me, Rachel. How are you doing today? I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me, August. You know, your book is so fascinating, and I thought you did such an excellent job of weaving together um you know, pertinent research findings. And I know you put in uh, over two, 200 hours of interviews. Um, what? Oh, what yeah, you... way more than that. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two, at least 200 interviews. And some of them I went back and interviewed again and again. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Such a process. Um, I love that you started out by sharing personal story from your your own experience. Would you share with us the inspiration for writing the book? Sure. Um, So I've always really loved books that kind of fuse personal experience with a larger kind of political story or narrative. And that was very much what I wanted to do with The Sex Myth. And it's it's very much where the book is grounded. So I, I was moved to write The Sex Myth largely because at the time that I started working on the book, sex was the part of my life that I felt most uncomfortable with and insecure about, uh, specifically at that time because I wasn't having any. Um, I was I rem- I didn't have sex in the way that most people define it. I- I'm reluctant to say I was a virgin um, until I was 26, and that wasn't because I was saving myself until marriage or because I was conservative. I was big old lefty, um, and it was very much kind of counter to the stories or to the way that I felt that I should be as a young woman. And I wanted to understand why that was, not just why I felt like I should be the way that I felt like I should be, but why was sex such a source of shame and anxiety, not just for me, but for so many other people as well? And that's the question I set out to answer in the book. So did you, you set out with this question, did you have expectations about what you might learn? That's a really interesting question. Um, I guess I had some expectations in that I, I uncovered this old 
because I started out researching the book in an academic context and I uncovered this old thesis proposal that I wrote back at the beginning of 2008. And when I read the proposal, I mean, obviously I didn't lay out what I thought the results would be because I didn't really know what that would be. Um, but the questions that I asked remained really consistent with what the finished product of the book was. So I guess at, already at that point, because so much of what I look at in the book are the cultural narratives that we hear around sex, I, you know, I'd had 25 years of experience of life absorbing those narratives at that point. So I had observations of my own about how sex was at once glamorized and demonized in the media. And I could see in that proposal the kind of very early kernels of the idea that would form the crux of the book, this idea of the sex myth, because I was curious, I guess, as to the importance that was placed in sex. So why is being different when it comes to sex more important or, a, you know, a greater liability than being different in other areas? And um, I would quickly find sociology to back up this idea, but I felt like it was because sex itself was deemed to be more important, not just in the sense of pleasure, in the sense of relationships, but in the sense of how it can transform us or condemn us. So I felt like it was that sense that sex was more important than other things. Very interesting. And as I was reading your book, I kept thinking of this adage that I hear from a lot of uh, therapists who say, basically, you know, sex is a very small part of a relationship until it's problematic, then it's like a huge part of the relationship. And I thought about that yes. in a larger context. It's like in our culture too, what you present very well is it becomes very problematic when we get, when we feel like there's something wrong with the way we are sexually. Yes, absolutely. I definitely see. I I think I kind of say something along the lines of that adage towards the end of the book when I talk about how when we align with whatever um, our culture expects of us when it comes to sex. So if you're a conservative person and you are waiting until marriage to have sex and you don't you're not struggling with that, then sex isn't going to be something you struggle with. Or if you're somebody who is heterosexual, you're not going to struggle with sexuality as much as someone who is queer might. Or if you're somebody who finds it easy to find great sexual partners or who finds it easy to orgasm, you're not going to struggle with those things in the way that somebody who did not align with the culture in those ways might. Sure. Yeah, it is so fascinating. And I feel like you probably have started so many important conversations and helped people feel relieved. I felt a sense of, um, when, especially when you started out talking about some of the vulnerable things in your own life with, you know, feeling uncomfortable that you'd been a virgin, I just felt like everyone would just take a big exhale and go, I'm here to, to be open and to learn and to, to think. And um, it's very affirming, I think, in many ways. And the the interviews you did, all these many interviews, I know it can be challenging to uh, get people to open up. Once you start the conversation, I feel like people are interested and some people love talking about it. Uh, but yes. especially people, <laughs> with, people with, with challenges, sometimes it's harder. How did you go about getting your interviews? Um, I found it surprisingly easy to get people to volunteer to be interviewed. Um, I had way, way, way more people volunteer to speak to me actually than I had time to or that would even have been useful to speak to because in qualitative research once you interview a certain number of people you start hearing the same stories over and over and over they call it saturation point so finding people to speak to was surprisingly not so much of a problem I guess getting them to open up um, when talking to them I guess it's 
the kind of basic interviewer skill that you and I would both exercise regularly in daily life, which is this attempt to to make people feel comfortable and to build a rapport with them quite quickly. I think that in my case, maybe a bit like, say, visiting a therapist, it I think it was easier for people to open up to me in part because I was a stranger. So I think, and I think that was also part of the appeal of being interviewed, that you could sit down with somebody who, you know, potentially you would never see again or hear from again, except when I called them up asking for a follow-up interview. I mean, you could sit mm-hmm. down and share these things that were quite intimate and that you might only share with your very closest friends or maybe not even with them and have it have no consequences for your life after that conversation. Sure. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I certainly relate. And I think it's it's also interesting that uh, because I think there's also stigma around talking to somebody who is a sex therapist as though there's already something kind of wrong, you know, with you yeah. versus uh, having a discussion with a, a friend or a stranger. Um, we talk a lot about the media's um, impact on body image and sexuality. And uh, your book explores it in a really interesting way and brings up some really good points. What concerns you most about the media's depictions of sex? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I am the media in part. So I don't want to place all the blame on them. But I think that what concerns me the most is this idea that's communicated, whether explicitly or implicitly, that some ways of being sexual are better than others, or that some ways of being sexual make you a bad person. Um, so I think we've seen progress on this recently uh, over the past few years, particularly in relation to gay and lesbian issues. So I think that now gay and lesbian TV characters, for example, tend to be folded more into the main cast rather than being this kind of special issues character. And similarly, I've noticed in teen and women's magazines, you'll see more stories of people who are in same-sex relationships uh, just kind of folded in, in this kind of, you know, normative kind of blasé way. But I think that there is still a stigma attached to women who have a high level of desire or to women who have a high number of sexual partners, even though conversely, I think the female ideal today is someone who is kind of sexually out there and confident. I think that both women, men and people of any gender really who are kinky are still treated as being um, a bit weird or even mentally disturbed and Fifty Shades of Grey is almost kind of the perfect example of that and I also think that people who aren't sexually active whether it's because they are asexual because they haven't found a partner at that point that works for them even if they've had a partner before or if they're just at a point in their lives where they're celibate they're either invisible or um, if, if they're discussed it's treated as like this massive problem in somebody's life. So there is this kind of clear picture of how sex is supposed to look, which is really sexually active, but still monogamous, um, still heterosexual, a little bit adventurous, but still fundamentally vanilla. Very well said. Yeah, that is that is so absolutely true. I'm always really fascinated by what people say about or what people perceive or assume about sexuality. Whenever I tell people what I do and about Girl Boner, a very common response mm. when I t- they say to me, but you're so nice or you seem so nice, like <laughs> like you can't be a nice person talking about sex or, you know, or you can't be a kinky person. Um, we've had I- I've noticed in the sex positive communities 
people who are very open about their sex positivity, especially here in the the Los Angeles area, uh, there's almost a presumption within that community that you're going to be really into kind of conventional conventional kink. That's almost an oxymoron, but you know what I mean, like uh, yes, the BDSM yeah. type stuff. And and people were surprised when I and another friend of mine who attended a, a a play with these sex positive people that we were monogamous people. You know that there's all these these missing dialogues. I love that you brought all that up. Uh, speaking of which, did many people bring up porn or talk to you about porn? You know, not nearly as much as I expected because, I mean, I worked over the book over a period of about seven years, but probably peak book working time was around 2012 to 2014. That was when I was really focused on that more than anything else. And that was also, and I was also living in the UK at the time. And 2012 to 2014 in the UK was it was a period where the UK media was kind of obsessed with pornography. Um, pornography was considered to be kind of the root of all evil and the root of, um, you know, the destruction of boys, the destruction of children, all of these sorts of things. Um, but amongst the people I interviewed, porn came up far, far less than I expected. And I, I mean, I tried to keep my interviews fairly open in terms of their structure, but often I would have to explicitly ask people about porn when it came up. And, um, when it did, and of course the conversations were shaped towards, you know, how our beliefs around sex were shaped, um, it didn't seem to be as influential as it's often portrayed. That's really interesting. Really interesting. So when you it, ask them, it they is would really talk unexpected. Yeah. Yeah. Because they say that it's now um, I, the new sex ed, you know, that that's where people are learning everything. <laughs> and I think that it is in a kind of, in, in almost, a very literal kind of way, right? So porn, if you want to see what sex looks like, porn is pretty much the only media that people can turn to. It's certainly the easiest media to come across. Okay. So in that sense, I think that it, it's, it is shaping people's understanding of how sex works. But I don't think – but I also think it's drawing upon – you know, ideas and ideals that were already in circulation in society. It's not operating in a vacuum or anything. Sure. Yeah, really good point. Uh, so you bring up a lot of interesting gender um, points and the ways that this, different kinds of sex myths um, affect men versus women and everybody who all over the, the gender spectrum. What were some of the, the biggest things that you found out about the sex myth and gender? I think something that would might surprise people is, I mean, obviously gender shapes the sex myth and I dedicate two, book, two chapters of the book to exploring that. But the bulk of the book um, covers the experiences of people from all genders. So most of the book is not gender divided. And that's because I actually think that uh, the expectations when it comes to sex are more similar than they are different, whether you're a man or a woman or genderqueer. Um, Every, almost everybody I spoke to, their their core concerns were, am I desirable? Am I lovable? Um, am I experiencing pleasure? Am I giving pleasure to the people that I am sexually active with? Um, or, you know, am I giving pleasure to myself if I'm single? Am I getting enough pleasure? Um, and that didn't differ so much across gender. I think we're sold the story that men are rewarded for having sex and women are public punished for having it and to some degree that's true as we talked about earlier I think women are still punished um, socially for expressing desire but I also think that 
there are a lot of commonalities in the terms of in terms of what people aspire to in their sex lives or in terms of the kinds of sexual people that people aspire to be. Absolutely. And what has the response been like uh, from readers? Um, I, the word that you used earlier, relief, is one that comes up a lot from people who connect with it most on an emotional level, uh, which is which is really lovely. And I think that, that that stems not just from hearing people's stories, but having that kind of structure to put your personal experience into. So to be able to understand that there are messages being conveyed about how sex should be in the media and in popular culture and our everyday conversation. And then I've also had a really wonderful response from other people in the sexuality field and in the media like yourself. So particularly from friends or colleagues in the sex positive community, there's been an appreciation for, I guess, the kind of expansion of the way that sex positivity is represented in public. So sex positivity not just being I love sex, but sex positivity being this kind of political act where you give others and yourself permission to engage in sex or not engage with it in whatever way works for you or them at a particular point in time. Beautiful. Yeah, that's how I feel about sex positivity for sure. And, you know, I think it needs to include asexuality and and, and all of yes. these things for sure. Uh, what else do you hope people gain from the book? Is that the main message that you're hoping people take away? Is that no matter how you feel about sex, it's okay? Yeah, I think that's the main message that I want people to take away. And I think the other message being that sex isn't just biological, it's also political. And that, as I said, that there are ideals being communicated about how sex should be. And then that that's partly why we feel so crap when we don't live up to them. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Uh, and what's next in the pipeline for you? I know you're busy, very busy promoting. You've been traveling and all that. Do you have another book in the future, do you think? I do, but I'm struggling to find time to work on it at the moment. Um, I'm thinking my next book probably won't be on sexuality, but I'm interested in further exploring, I guess, the theme of power and how it operates in everyday life, but looking at a kind of another facet of life rather than sex. Beautiful. Well, we wish you all the best. Thank you so much for for joining me. Uh, And what's the best way to learn more about you and connect with you online? Oh, I, it's a great question. I'm like, I'm all over the place. Um, my main website is uh, www.rachelhills.net. I'm on Twitter at Rachel Hills and on Instagram at Ms. Rachel Hills. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining me. Wasn't she fabulous? Have you all heard the term sexual aversion? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's an aversion to sex that can crop up for all kinds of reasons. It's also pretty darn common for women after childbirth. It's normal to have a decreased uh, sex drive after giving birth, according to OBGYN Laura Fiojek-McCain, and can last for months. In one study of postpartum women, uh, 20% had little or no desire for sex for three months after delivery. And another 21% had a complete loss of desire or a total aversion to sexual activity, which means total of 41% had very, very little interest, if any, um, in sex after having a baby. So it's, it's obviously a really common issue and something that we shouldn't have shame about if it happens. Um, lots of other factors can contribute 
to it as well. And some of these derive from having a baby or raising a small child, including fatigue, stress, hormonal imbalances. It's always wise to have those checked. If you have any concerns about that, don't be ashamed or fearful to talk to your doctor, to your gynecologist. Um, body issues can contribute. Societal messaging can contribute. In our culture, sex and motherhood are considered polar opposites, basically. Um, you know, it's like if you talk about being a mom, you can't talk about being a sexual being. I think that's kind of sad. As you know from having uh, some guests on the show talking about uh, being moms and kind of the shaming and ridicule they've received if they are very openly sex positive, like Krista Ann, for example. Um, I, I just think that that's really, really unfortunate. Some experts believe that there is an evolutionary component too, um, that your body basically on some level doesn't want to get pregnant again, you know, too soon or, or whatnot. So regardless of, of the causes, it's something that uh, causes a lot of stress and strain for individuals and couples uh, while they're um, enjoying and also going through the challenges of having an, a new little one in the house. Um, for many moms who experience sex loss drive, um, sex drive a loss after pregnancy, it comes back gradually, which is good news. But that is not always the case. I received this message from a listener we're going to call Sarah, who's been really struggling in this department. It's a really brave and honest message. I'm going to read to you here. Sarah writes, Hey, August, I realize that I've developed a sexual aversion towards my husband that I'm desperate to undo. I feel like it started after I had my first child. I had my children very close. They're 18 months apart. I noticed a decline in libido while breastfeeding. Two months after breastfeeding was completed, I was pregnant again with my son. Wow. Now my son is almost three. I haven't breastfed in two and a half years, and I shudder when my husband tries to be sexual with me. I have no history of sexual abuse. My husband has never hurt me physically or emotionally. I have no idea how this developed into such a strong aversion. Sometimes when he kisses me, I have to stop because it feels gross. When he goes to touch my vagina, I'll react and slap his hand away. When I try and just take it for the team, I cry and cry. I love my husband and I find him physically attractive. He's now saying if I don't start being sexual with him, he wants a separation or an open relationship because he doesn't want to live a sexless life. We used to have a great sex life before kids. He was the one who was, quote, too tired. Now it's the total opposite. To complicate matters, I have very little desire for self-pleasure. I do find guys cute and attractive that I see on the street, so I know the juices still flow. I recently also found out that I have pretty severe incontinence that may require surgery to fix since childbirth. I don't feel that caused this, but it may have contributed. And just for the record, it was a slow crawl to the word aversion. It started off as just not wanting to have sex very much or at all, but occasionally I did it anyway to make him happy. The aversion developed over time maybe because I did it more times than I really wanted to. Truthfully, since I had kids, I never want sex. My libido went from 90% to 15%. Please help. How do I get my libido back and undo this aversion? I'm totally healthy aside from the incontinence. I have no hormonal issues. I've been tested. My vitamin D and B levels are good as well. Life is stressful as I work a full-time job and have two kids, Sarah. Oh, Sarah, my heart really goes out to you. I wish I could reach through the sound waves and give you a hug. I I just really, really um, am hoping that you and your guy can, can find your way through this. I passed your uh, dilemma on to our resident sex therapist, Dr. Megan Fleming. Here's what she had to say for you. Sarah, thanks so much for asking this question. It's complicated, as I'm sure you must know. Certainly having a baby is a huge transition for any couple, 
and certainly not only just going from two to three, but then so close in age to four in such a short window of time. You had so much going on in your body hormonally, especially with breastfeeding, but there's also the physical demands and often lack of sleep that comes with babies and young children. It seems like in the beginning, even though you weren't in the mood, you sort of pushed yourself to take it for the team. And I hear that often, but there's a huge difference when you are not starting out with desire and yet through the stroking, caressing, your body gets aroused, which is sort of referred to as the open and receptive model. But it seems in your case, I imagine that it was more like not only just taking it for the team, but almost grinning and bearing it. And your body wasn't responding and the touch began to feel uncomfortable and unwanted. And our bodies really have a way of taking care of ourselves. And I believe that this is how the aversion developed. Often it's a combination of operant conditioning, sort of paired stimulus and response and classical conditioning. If you can remember Pavlov's dog uh, from a basic site course, uh, your body has learned that your husband's touch doesn't feel good, which can then lead to further avoidance and lack of desire. It's great, however, that you want to want, because not all women do. Someone would actually be content to never have sex again. And that's tragic to me because it's like they've lost a sense of connection with, or maybe even never even known how good it's, they can feel in their bodies, both giving and receiving touch with their partner. So although having gone from 90 to 15% is a huge drop in your own libido, to me, 15 represents at least your intersexual pilot light is on. When a woman have, or your sex life, a sexless marriage actually gets to zero, it's a lot harder. Think of it like a bike. It takes a lot more energy to get the wheels turning than to keep them in motion. It's physics, just like it's a lot harder to turn on a cold engine than one that's warm. And so to me, your inner sexual pilot light is that opportunity for you alone without the pressure of anticipating what you're supposed to feel with your husband, just to explore with fantasy, uh, what it's like in reading, erotic reading, what it's like to sort of keep your pilot light on and turn it up and feel pleasure for yourself with no demands whatsoever, not in any way associating it with pleasure, pressure or pleasing your husband. And this is the first step to extinguish this conditioned response where again, there's no expectation, no demand. You're just in a good headspace to really take in mentally and when it feels right with your own hand and touch, what feels good and gives you pleasure. And when in time, when you begin to feel that pleasure for yourself through fantasy and mental rehearsal, you can start to bring your husband in. Maybe the times that you first got together, times before the baby, or just nice caring behaviors, things that he's done that help you feel sort of like leaning in toward him. And that's sort of the key in the first step is being able to see and visualize in your own mind how your husband from a connected, genuine, and loving place really wants you to feel the pleasure of his touch and that you can get yourself mentally and physically to a place of wanting to receive that touch and not just from a sense of obligation. So common exercise in sex therapy, and it dates back to Masters and Johnson, is sensate focus. And we start by taking sex off the table. That's right. Sort of letting your husband know for the next month, next three months, there will absolutely be no sex because your body needs to learn that touch doesn't equal any demand of expectation of what you're supposed to be feeling. So the exercise starts where you take turns giving and receiving touch. Think sensual touch, massage, not just in a therapeutic way. Um, think about the environment and you know the lighting and the warmth and whatever you might need there. And then just begin to notice what it feels like to give 
and how it feels to receive and if there are any differences in that and letting your body learn to relax in your husband's presence and with his touch. Initially, not only is it clear that there's no sex, there's also no genital touching. When you can relax into his touch and it can feel sensual, emerging, then you can begin to advance to Sensate 2, which includes genital stimulation, but without the goal of orgasm. I'm going through this really quickly, and it's just an introduction. Ultimately, you will learn that there are conditions for sex, the foundation of which is to be rested and relaxed, which I can imagine with a full-time job and two kids and life demands, you know, is something even just to carve out that time that it's even possible. Also, falling with that feeling of being connected to your husband. So many women say in order to feel desire, they first need to feel connected. So prioritize having time alone, the two of you, and doing things that you enjoy together and make you feel light, happy, connected. I can't stress enough how important that is to prioritize. And there's so much more, of course, I could say, but I just wanted to give you some basics. Your situation's not uncommon, but as I started saying in the beginning, it's complicated. And understandably, your husband has a lot of feelings here too, because I imagine the feeling of rejection and not feeling desired by you is taking its toll on his self-esteem and uh, feeling of value in the marriage. So if you're both feeling at an impasse, even trying on some of these things I just suggested, I highly recommend seeing a qualified couples and sex therapist Typically, I recommend someone who's certified by the American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, or ASECT. The most important thing you have to recognize is you don't have to do this alone. There is absolutely hope and help. Thank you so much, Dr. Megan. Such important points and such wonderful advice as always. I love what she said about uh, focusing on pleasure in general, you know, focusing on pleasure for yourself first. I think it's so common, as she said, to feel like we need to perform for our partner or really genuinely being, you know, concerned for their happiness and their uh, well-being and wanting to make sure that they're happy and then also grieving and missing that part of you. But as she said, it's still there. You know, I love what she said about the pilot light being on because that it's there is is huge. Um, I still might check again uh, your estrogen levels. I know that it can be very complex as far as um, determining if they're in a healthy place, but it might not hurt to get another check on that. I learned from um, a nurse we had on the show actually talked about how uh, it can be really difficult to get an accurate reading. So sometimes talking to another gynecologist or explaining what these symptoms are, because I think it's hard sometimes to talk to a doctor about sexual issues beyond just the physical health, you know, not not feeling ashamed of saying, you know what, I... I'm not feeling the turn on a lot of what you just said and, and seeing if they can actually um, add to what Dr. Megan said or affirm it for you, maybe check to see if there is a physical issue happening. But it really sounds like a lot of it is that stress, that pressure. You have so much going on. And I love also hearing Dr. Megan say again, it's you're not alone. This is common. Um, and the awareness is important. And communication with your partner is always important. If you feel so comfortable after uh, listening to this, of course, you know, share this with, with your guy. Um, maybe him hearing Dr. Megan's advice would be helpful too. Um, or just absorb it yourself and, and really try to, you know, take steps together as you can. Uh, please let me know how things go. If, if you're 
so moved to do so down the road. Um, if you have more questions, if anybody else has questions, feel free to contact me uh, through social media or send me a private message through my website. That's augustmclaughlin.com. To learn more about Dr. Megan, visit her website, greatlifegreatsex.com, and follow her on Twitter at Megan Fleming PhD. For more girl boner fun, visit my website again, augustmclaughlin.com, where you can subscribe to my blog, find episode extras, and social media links. Um, I had some fun news recently. Girl Boner was ranked number eight um, by Kinkley in their contest for sex blog superheroes of 2015. I'm beyond honored. The list is amazing, and there's a whole top 100 list. You can check out all kinds of cool stuff by going to kinkley.com or clink, 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 click the ad on my uh, little banner on my website site for um for kinkley for the superheroes and you can explore all kinds of sex positive material there's a whole variety including a guest or two that we've had on this show thank you so much for joining me and have a beautiful girl boner embracing week <laughs> <laughs>